Well, we want to get uh, right into the subject, and I hope to, as we get into this leadership, I'm going to put some emphasis on conflict management. And this is a um, this is a class. So at some point, uh, we're not too maybe too large that we can do some questions and answers here as we get in. And I don't know that I have all the answers, but I probably have a lot of good help in the room. And um, but I want to to get into this. And first of all, I'd like to introduce the fact that there's lots of leadership principles out there, uh, a lot of good stuff. But you can also use those leadership principles and be a very bad leader, meaning that you can take people to a very bad place. Uh, can you think of some leaders that have taken, taken some people some, to some very bad places? Very strong leaders, very powerful leaders, leaders that could communicate, leaders that could organize, leaders that were very bright. Um, I, don't, I don't think they're good leaders because of where they took people. But I think of Hitler. And don't go out of here and say, I said he was a good leader. I, I think he was a terrible leader. But he used methodologies that were pretty good at times. But he was very manipulative, of course. How about the devil and his evil angels? Are they leaders? What did the devil do? What, was he bright? Did he have a lot of good technical skills? Did he get the A's and B's put together? But he ends up looking at, look at us. I mean, we're, we're in this real mess here. So... Real good leadership is going to end up learning to follow. And, and my point is that we need to learn to follow before, before we lead. Uh, it's hard to lead unless you first of all follow. So what is it? What is it? Knowledge. I love this text in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but what? Love builds up. Uh, so what we want to do is wherever you've got leadership and influence, you want to use that to build up the kingdom of God. A servant leader leads by serving, and a servant leader never forgets that he is really a what? And, and you can never forget that. that uh, we, I have a, we have a wonderful union president, uh, Don Livesey, and sometimes we talk about this, and that's the subtlety of if you have a lot of responsibility and the influence and power that goes with that, it can be very subtle and uh, can start to corrupt you if you're not careful. So that's why we have to stay close to the Lord Jesus and remember at the end of the day that we are nothing more than servants uh, of the Lord Jesus. All right, so a servant letter. Here, the scribes and Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking. Were scribes and Pharisees leaders? Did they have a lot of influence? Uh, this is in Sadducees, you could add to that. But Jesus said, but all their works they do to be what? Uh, and that is uh, uh, a challenge for leaders and any of us. Okay, let's go to principle number one, servant leadership. Um, and I'm taking a lot of this from a book by Gene Wilkes, and I brought that along. Have any of you ever seen this book? It's, um, it's on Jesus and leadership. A friend of mine by the name of Fred Earls, used to be conference secretary, gave me this, and I looked at a lot of other, but this is about one of the best books on leadership I think that's around, and I think he gets it right as far as Christian leadership is concerned. So it's, um, it's by Gene Wilkes, W-I-L-K-E-S, and it's on Jesus leadership, discovering the secrets of servant leadership from the life of Christ, and I found that to be very helpful. Okay, principle one is humble your hearts. Matthew 18, 4 says, whoever humbles himself as a little child. What, what makes a child humble? This is a class. It's not a preaching session. What's that? 
Dependence, that's very good. Very close. No pride of opinion. Yeah. He's very, de a child, a small child is very dependent on his or her parents. Am I right? So servant leaders that serve under the Lord, we have to be dependent on our heavenly Father and our Savior just as a child is dependent on his parents. Um, all right, number two, Luke 14, you know the parable, the head table. And Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What two forces are in that text? There are two forces there. One is self, and the other is God. Am I right? So if you exalt yourself, what will God do as leaders? He'll humble you. And if you humble yourself, what will God do? Isn't that interesting? All right, because that's principle one. We're going to work on that a little bit more here. Forgot I've got to keep. Um... All right, faith in God produces two traits of uh, character, humility and the ability to wait. And that's hard if you want to get something done. Uh, it's hard to wait sometimes for God to move and trusting Him to move. I'll, get, I'll share a little bit about George Mueller a little later here and uh, some of his decision-making processes. Uh, the difference between pride and true confidence is the what? So should a leader have confidence? How can you lead if you don't have confidence? The question is, between a servant leader and a self-leader, is a true leader has confidence in his source and in who he's dependent on. And that's, that's what gives him confidence. He doesn't have confidence, well, I, I'm talented, I'm smart, I'm whatever. That's the way the world thinks. But a true servant Christian leader has confidence in the one he serves. And for that reason, he can have confidence as he leads. And this is, uh, this is Philippians 2, um, 7 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus, if you read the rest of that, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took on the form of a servant. So Jesus is the greatest example of servant leadership. He's the greatest example there's ever been of servant leadership. And he becomes the model for everyone who works underneath his control. Principle number two, before we can lead, we must what? If you want to be a good leader, learn to follow. Uh, and... I'm, I'm glad that I had an opportunity to follow a lot of good people through the years. And I learned a lot from those folk. Uh, but the one I really want to follow is none other than the Savior himself. So I need to study what he does, how he leads, and what his principles are. Okay, follow or following means from the dictionary to go or to come after to, definition, to engage in as a way of life. Now, that's a very good one for a servant leader who's following the Lord Jesus. To obey. Obey is a dirty word in many places. But let me tell you, in God's eyes, it's a wonderful word. He likes obedience. The reason we're in the trouble that we're in is because of... And so as Christian leaders, we need to be ready to obey the Lord. Not our own opinion, not our own ideas, not our own aspirations and dreams. I'll talk some more about that in a moment. In other words, you do what the leader does and his way of life becomes your way of life.
Numbers 14, 24 tells a story of Caleb. And, uh, and you know what happened on the borders of Kadesh Barnea, 40 years, and they didn't go into the promised land. There were two spies that came back and said, hey, we can do this. They're giants, but look what God's already done for us. If you read Caleb's uh, story, he's moving by faith, and the others are saying, they're weeping and wailing, and so, oh, you know, and you know all the story of the rebellion and 40 more years in the desert and everything. God preserves the life of Caleb. He's 80 years old when he and Joshua go in and conquer Cana, and what does Caleb do from the tribe of Judah? What does he ask for? Yeah, give me that same set of giants that everybody else was weeping and wailing, and I'll take care of them. It won't be me because I have confidence in the Lord who sent me. He had confidence in his source. He wasn't a proud man. He was just confident in who was moving him and behind him and backing him up. I'm going to tell you, that is as true for a mother who's trying to raise her children as it is for somebody in some executive position. It doesn't matter where you're at. We all need that confidence that God is leading us and moving us, and then we can get things done for the Lord Jesus. And what the Lord says about, about him in both places, both in Joshua and in Numbers, he says about Caleb that Caleb followed me, and I love the quote here, he followed me how? Fully. I'd like for that to be said about my life. Now, I'm not sure I could live up to what Caleb did, but I would like to be able to say when I meet the Lord Jesus, Jay, you followed me fully. Wouldn't you like to have that said about your life? Followed me fully. He was a great, Caleb was a great leader, but he followed fully the Lord in order to become that, that leader. Simon Peter, um, I... Jesus, when he called the disciples, he did not come and say to them, come here and I'm going to make you great leaders. He didn't say that. I, Simon, I'm going to make you the Pope. Well, we know that's not biblical. Um, he, he, didn't, he didn't do that. Jesus looked at those fish, fishermen and he said to them, what's the first words he says to them as he finds them there and gets ready to launch his ministry? He says what? And all of them would become great leaders. They would, every one, become great leaders for the Lord. And most of them gave their lives before it was done. We meet them in the kingdom. Uh, they've got all their names, by the way. I, it's at the 12 gates of the 12 foundations, one of them. But uh, these men all became great leaders. So every time you go into one of the gates of the New Jerusalem, you'll see one of the leaders, Jesus, form. Uh, they had a great privilege to sit on, at his feet. So... They, they understood. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. I want to come back to that because it's the Lord Jesus that actually makes us into leaders. And if we're following him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The Apostle Paul was also a follower. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, be imitators of me. Now, is that, is that leadership? Yes or no? It is. He's saying, follow me. That's what he's saying. Do what I do. But then he adds a qualification. Just as also I am of what? Christ. He had it clear in his mind, and we can never get that out of our mind. Jesus was also a follower. Uh, we don't think of Jesus as a follower, but Jesus was a follower in order to lead. Who was he following constantly in his life? 
He was following his father. And uh, these are tremendous statements by Jesus. He says, the son of man can do how much? Of himself, unless it is something he sees the father doing. So who is Jesus imitating? He's watching his father and he's doing what his father does. So if you want to be a great Christian leader, you look at Jesus and you do what Jesus does. And uh, then here's another one that goes with that uh, in, in John 8, 28. He has not left me alone, his father, for I always do the things that are what? And Jesus said in another place, the reason you don't believe is because you're always seeking to please men. He said that to the Pharisees. And that's a real problem for leaders. How about a, a mother in her home and she's leading her children? Where, where's the success there? Does the mother want to please her children? Well, up to a certain degree, that's true. But what's, who does she really want ultimately please? And if you, if you please, if, you're, if, you're, if your goal is to be popular with your kids, then you could compromise doing what Jesus would have you to do with those kids. Am I right? And you start indulging the kids instead of forming them up for greater tasks. Same thing in the church if you're a pastor. Same thing if you have any kind of, if you've got your own business. If you're running your own business, who do you run that business for? If you have a ministry that Jesus has given you, who do you run that, that ministry for? Who does that ministry belong to? Who does that business belong to? I'll tell you why it belongs to the Lord Jesus is because you belong to the Lord Jesus. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, then everything God has given you to do belongs to him too. All right, he's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. At the end of the day, you want to please the Lord. Christian leadership always begins with God's vision and God's mission. I, I, I want to say this with sweet kindness, but I, I've watched this and I've, and I've seen people say, okay, we, we've got to have a visioning conference. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that or sinful. I'm not saying that. But we've got, we got to have a visioning conference. We, we, we've got to figure out what we need to do here. And I often say to myself, you know what? I think God's already laid that vision out. My business is to figure out how to carry out that mission, how to carry out that vision. Who gives you your mission? Who puts your mission in place? And uh, the Lord, uh, Christian leadership always begins with God's vision and his mission, not with your own. Christian leadership seeks not to do great things, but to do God's mission. At, at, again, when you're done and you see the Lord Jesus, you want to hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's because you carried out his mission, not your own mission. Okay. Keep going here. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. To follow Jesus means that we take up his cross. What does that mean? Linda and I just had worship this morning, and Ellen White gave a definition of taking up the cross. And the taking up the cross means that we run contrary to all the natural, carnal inclinations that we have. That's quite a definition. I put it in my words, but it's very close. In other words, if you have carnal um, uh, inclinations, 
the way you pick up the cross is it's going to run against those because selfish, uh, unselfish love will always do that. And the one final analysis, the one quality that all successful people have is the ability to take on responsibility. Have you ever run into anybody in your life that doesn't like to take on responsibility? Run into those people? But leaders have got to have the ability to take responsibility. And taking responsibility brings inherent risk. And I'm going to talk about risk in just a few minutes. Uh, there's a lot of risk in that. And to take a lot of responsibility means a lot of people are depending on you. Um, so, yes, please. Yeah, there are certain kinds. You want to say that again? It's important to understand that as a leader, responsibility can't be delegated. Accountability can, but responsibility always rests with the leader. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, that's well said. You cannot, you cannot shirk your responsibility. You cannot duck your responsibility. You may delegate responsibility, uh, not responsibilities, but uh, tasks and so forth. But your personal responsibility, you've got to take that responsibility. Yeah, well said. Okay, the final analysis, one quality successful people have is the ability to take on responsibility. All right, let's uh, go on. What kind of responsibility does a Christian leader have? Well, first of all, I've just put some questions up here for us to think about. How carefully we study the life of Christ. I find a lot of people today in our world that try to separate Christ from his own teachings. And uh, I mean, it's a, I don't mean to make whatever, but, you know, there are a lot of people today that just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes I'm asking myself, what Jesus are you talking about? Um, you cannot separate Jesus from his teachings. So we need to be studying the teachings of Christ and then applying those teachings to our leadership ability. That's why we have to be reading our Bible. We have to ask, now, what does Jesus mean by that? Do we really know what he teaches? And have we applied those teachings to our lives? And can we lead his followers if we've not followed him? Uh, it comes right back down to making sure that we know what Jesus expects out of us. Okay, a follower follows because he believes in and trusts the leader. Now, at the end of the day, that's true for me as well as for you. It is trust or faith that dictates every action of my life. Think about it for a minute. All behavior comes because of your faith in something or someone. Am I right? Some of you are still thinking about it. It's okay. It's good. I'll give you an example of that. We're not in California. California's a beautiful state. But in Michigan, we don't really ever worry about buildings shaking, do we? But if this building begins to shake, how is that going to change your behavior? It's going to change mine. You're going to be right out the door, and I'm going to be right behind you. Why? Because right now you're sitting perfectly calm in here because you have trust in the building. Am I right? You're not afraid. But if the building begins to shake, it's going to change your behavior. So if you trust the teachings of Jesus, 
it's always going to affect your behavior. Can't help but do it. Following can be tough. Do you remember uh, there were several things in the life of Christ where he went to Jerusalem one time, he went late, and you know the story, and there were other times that disciples were urging Jesus to go to Jerusalem because they wanted him to get the, to get the blessing of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leadership of Israel. They could only think, especially Judas, if, they could, if Jesus could just get their blessing, he would be, everything would be great. But now they had come down the, to the last part. He's going to his fourth Passover in three and a half years. And the disciples and Jesus know that they hate him. They're livid with him. They would do anything to kill him. And the disciples know that. And this is the time when the disciples start to weigh in on the opposite end. Oh, let's just stay here in Galilee. These are my words. Let's just stay here in Galilee because, you know, we're we accepted here. But if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. This is where Jesus on the way tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, because he was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. So Jesus is leading the way, and he's very determined. The picture of that text, now they were on the road. Can you see that? Going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. Why was Jesus going before them? Because they're following reluctantly. They're not excited about this. They know there's going to be conflict and there's going to be difficulty, and they're not excited about this. Going before them, and they were amazed. Why are they amazed? They're amazed because Jesus is so determined to do this. And as they followed, they were what? They were afraid. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus when he is determinedly going right down this road. When our fears take over, I, I'm telling you that being in leadership positions sometimes, you own your own company, you're running your own ministry, or you pastor of a church, or you're in some kind of work like I am, and you sense the responsibility. There's been a lot of mornings I've got up and I've said, Lord, what am I doing here? I mean, I, it, it'd be a lot easier to do some other things. But the Lord always has a reply. His reply is, my grace is sufficient for you. Those who follow such bold decisions are either amazed or afraid. But the relationships are built on trust. Uh, are there going to be bold decisions before Jesus comes? Wow, there will be. Did Jesus have an agenda? And uh, Peter scolds Je Jesus because he missed the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. He wanted one on a throne. James and John saw the time was right and missed the kind of throne Jesus would sit on. He had a throne coming, but it was a cross. As long as ambition is honored above discipleship, church leaders will honor the ambitious over the obedient. 
Think about that for a minute. Who are the kind of people that you honor? The ambitious or the obedient? This is Mark uh, 10:38. Reflections. James and John wanted position. Jesus wanted service. Two, why were the rest of the disciples mad? Anybody want to tell me why they were mad at James and John? They weren't the same one, exactly. They were all thinking the same thing. What they all wanted was a position. And when James and John showed up and got the jump on everybody else, they were mad. Why does suffering often precede leadership? It is preparation. How many of you like suffering? I don't either. But Ellen White says that when we are invited into the sufferings of Christ, it's the highest honor that he can bestow on us. And many times suffering is because it teaches us humility. It teaches us dependence. It teaches us how frail we are and how uh, we just don't have the ability to carry out what God has, has laid at our feet. Servant leaders are called to obey before they what? Command. Principle number three, greatness is found in, its, in service, and that's a paradox. Some people say, you know, you're, you're so nice and so kind, but oh, you were, you were sure tough on that one. I had something happen not long ago. And I won't tell you where or when, but um, I had a situation that, in my estimation, demanded a very clear, decisive statement of what the trouble was. And somebody had prepped everybody at what a nice guy I was. And so when I walked in and sat down and I said, this is the trouble and et cetera, et cetera, blew them away. Oh, I, I didn't expect you to be. What is a paradox? A paradox is something that seems to be conflicted, but it's really in working together. It's really in intention. It's not in conflict. And most people don't like that second part of that role if you're a leader. But if you own your own business, are, are there times that you're going to have to be very direct at times? Why? Because you've got people depending on you. If you're running a ministry, it's the same thing. Uh, we have responsibilities and there are certain expectations. Um, Notice some of the paradoxes in Jesus' statements. Whoever wants to be great must be your what? Wow. Now, the world doesn't think that way. Those who want to lord it over others, they all usually get an army. Those who want to exercise authority over go after the head office. But there's paradoxes in leadership. Abraham Lincoln and Jesus are going to compare these from uh, Wilkes' book. Lincoln was a failure as an army captain. Did you ever read about Lincoln as an army captain? He couldn't get the troops to do the right thing. They went the wrong way. I mean, it was just a mess. 
but he was probably the greatest president the United States ever had. Paradox. Whoops. Here's uh, some of Abraham Lincoln's leadership style. He was charismatic yet unassuming. He was consistent yet flexible. He was a victim of vast amounts of slander and malice. By the way, the more responsibility you take on and the higher profile your leadership is, the more of that you'll get if you're faithful to the Lord Jesus. You can just count on it. Uh, Jesus is the greatest of all leaders, and how much of that did he get? Yet he, uh, Lincoln was also immensely popular with his troops. He was trusting and compassionate, yet he could also be demanding and what? He was a risk taker and yet innovative, yet patient and calculating. He seemed to have a revolving door of generals whom he often removed and replaced, yet in reality he gave them ample time to support and produce results. He claimed not to control events, that his policy was to have no policy, when in actuality he did control events to a very large degree by being aggressive, taking charge, and being extraordinarily decisive. Fascinating. Here's some of uh, Jesus' leadership style. He was as gentle as a lamb and yet courageous as a what? Go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and you'll find Jesus pictured as the lion of the tribe of Judah when he comes to open the seals, but when he sets on the throne, he's the slain lamb. That's a paradox. Do, do lambs and lions mix? He was, Christ was yielding and yet aggressive when cornered by injustice. You ever read Matthew 23? Jesus did the same thing that John the Baptist did. When the Pharisees showed up and the Sadducees showed up and the scribes, and they all wanted to be baptized by John the Baptist because John the Baptist's ministry was at its heyday and they wanted the people to see that they were going along. John read their hearts. And he says, you brood of... Tough. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 24. He even goes further. He says, he calls them whited sepulchers and he made sure they understood what he meant. He says, you're full of stinking dead men's bones and bodies, but on the outside you're whitewashed. He was gregarious but spent much time alone. And yet, let me go back to this one about yielding, a get aggressive in corner. How, how did he handle Mary Magdalene? In Simon's house, when she broke the bottle and poured it over him, it's one of the most touching, most beautiful pictures. And it's, uh, it's, she was probably one of his most devoted disciples. And, and Jesus, at that point, he's the guest, and Judas started the grumbling, and Jesus looks at everybody around him, and I love what he said. He said, leave her alone. Whoa. Judas shut up, but he really wrinkled his heart. Leave her alone. He meant it. When he walks into the temple, and they've got all the money changers and everybody all around him there, and they're all, you, know, you can't hardly worship for the noise they're making, and Jesus picks up a rope that looks like a whip, what do these people do? 
that got it out of there. There was authority there. Jesus commanded. Here's an unseen one that we don't think of very often. I think you'll find the Spirit of Prophecy, and I have it up here. But when Jesus was being captured by the mob in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and they were coming, tying his hands and getting ready to haul him off, there's an unseen picture where the angels of heaven wanted to come to his, re, to his rescue. But a commanding angel told his angels, you must not. So the commanding angel carries out the command of the Father not to rescue Jesus. Had they rescued him, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So he was gregarious, and yet he spent much time, why, how? Notice these contrasts. He was meek, and yet in control at all times. Look at the woman at the well. That's a beautiful picture of his meekness, and yet in control. I don't have time to go into that one. I love that one. <clears throat> I love the fact that, you know, he let her go down the road, and then he'd just bring her right back. He never had a formal education, yet he taught with great success and authority. He was a conformist, and I don't know how to say that word, uh, I think it's another way of saying that he didn't go along with the establishment. Always. Sometimes he did, of course, but when it was wrong, he wouldn't. He was a friend to the outcast and yet dined with insiders. Quite a picture of Jesus. Um, Jesus' character never changed. I, uh, this is a, a wonderful quote here from uh, Wilkes. He remained committed to the Father's call in his life, and out of that calling character, however, he adapted a style of leadership to meet the moment. Paradox gives a leader the power to relate the complexities of a vision. Seemingly opposite images create a tension that's what? And I have found that to be true. It's necessary. If we are to find the truth, great leaders use paradox to stake the values of the new reality. Jesus defined greatness and leadership with paradox. He painted greatness as the work of a servant. He defined leadership as the place of a slave. Both pictures seem distorted to those who saw them through the lens of their own culture. I, it, it's interesting sometimes, and this is not my subject. Uh, as a pastor, though, you, you get in, I get into it because I have uh, workers. Discipline is never fun. But any organization that does not discipline itself is, dis, is destined to disintegrate or either lose its focus and what it's really about. Uh, let me give you one example, of, or not one, but look at the great Protestant na uh, uh, churches that came out of the Reformation. Look at them. They all have given up discipline and embraced indulgence. God never is never indulgent. Is he merciful? Is he forgiving? Is he kind? But he's never indulgent. And he's not afraid to call sin by its right name. He's not afraid to do that. 
Here are some paradox statements of Jesus. Notice these are statements. Whoever finds his life will, and whoever loses his life for my sake will. Wow. The last shall be first, and the first will be. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What will heaven really be like? I wish I had time to spin on that. A lot of people talk about the gold, and they're all going to be there in New Jerusalem. I believe all that's going to be there. And that's going to be wonderful. But the reason heaven's going to be such a wonderful place is because it's going to be a place where the culture is unselfish. Think what it would be to live in a society where everybody else is thinking about somebody else's good. A society where everybody else is saying, what can I do for that person? How can I bless that person? How can my work be a blessing to somebody else? What can I do to bless? I'm telling you, that's why, uh, that's why it's going to go on for eternity because there's not going to be in sin in that. It's just going to be the sweetest, unselfish love and, uh, because that's the kind of leader that Jesus, that Jesus is. Uh, James and John wanted to be mega disciples. There are a lot of churches that want to be mega churches. I've looked at a lot of this stuff and studied some of it, and it looks like to me that a lot of this stuff is just a lot of people who want to be pope, little popes. Doesn't matter what denomination is. Stewards choose partnership over what? Rulership. That says it's a wrong spelling, but I couldn't figure out how to do it any other way, make it work. Um, empowerment over dependency and service over self-interest. Let me go back to that. Stewards choose partnership over rulership. They choose empowerment over dependency. Um, uh, rulers that have to have somebody dependent on them all the time are insecure leaders. And insecure leaders are the worst people to have to work under. I, I think it was... Um, Maxwell that gave an illustration. It was not an Adventist minister, but there, this, you might could find some illustrations like it. But uh, this minister had a large church, and he had a new ministerial intern coming in, and he brought him into his church, and he says, now, he came up and he took a piece of chalk, and he drew it around the pulpit, and he says, listen, as long as you never step into that space, you and I will get along just fine. That guy was insecure. And that's a, a, if, you're, if you're leading, don't be insecure because you're going to make the people underneath you miserable. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't build them. In fact, leaders should be choosing the very best people they can get on their hands on. I love to have people that are smarter than I am, that are more talented than I am. I want those kind of people. And frankly, I'm surrounded with a lot of those kind of people. They're bright. And all they'll do is make, is make God's work look good. If I'm insecure and I say, well, I don't know, I don't, you know, he's, he's pretty, pretty smart, pretty bright, pretty charismatic, and, I don't know, you know, he might take my place sometimes. Well, good, let him take my place. Jesus will give me something else to do. If I'm humble and teachable, this is not about me. This is about God's work. Stewards choose partnership over rulership, empowerment over dependency, and service over self-interest. Servant leadership is service without what? Applause. In other words, servant leaders aren't looking for applause. Servant leaders aren't putting their, you know, sticking their finger in the wind. Now, yeah, you must be prudent and wise and kind and all that, but at the end of the day, what you really want to do is, God, am I doing your will today? 
I, I uh, heard somebody say while I was here this week that if a survey was 100%, but it was contrary to Scripture, leaders still should stand up and go the opposite direction because Jesus is calling the shots through His Word. It's very interesting. I thought that was a pretty good, interesting statement. All right. Servant leaders mean giving up your personal rights. You ladies will like this next statement. Men, give, they give up their personal rights when they marry a wife. Is that true? <laughs> Men respond to that pretty good. That's a good thing, isn't it? But I sure do get a lot of good stuff in return. I commit to that woman for the rest of my life. Make her the top of my affections, and then I'm blessed in return for doing that. You limit your affections. Control your affections. You surrender those affections. But men also who should be leaders in their home should also be ready to lay down their life for their wife. That's the kind of leader Jesus was. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. We don't talk enough about that. Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus becomes the model leader. And what did Jesus do for the church? Leaders should be ready to lay down their life for their charges. Now, I'm not getting into all the other stuff. You get me afterwards. You want to talk to me about that. So just in a good way. Women also give up their personal rights when they become what? Is that true, ladies? Do, do babies and children tie you down? Do they restrict your freedom? Do their priorities become your responsibilities? Am I right? How many mothers have, you, have we been graced with through history given their lives for their babies or their children? It's hard to find a mother. There may be some in the crazy world that we live in, but there are many mothers today, they wouldn't hesitate to give their life for those children because they're servant leaders. Principle four, servant leaders take risk. It is not for the faint-hearted. Is your church, your business willing to take risk? We need to take wise risk, calculated risk, but risk where Jesus tells us to go. There are some times when taking risk, we do it because we're just told to do it and not separately because we can see the way. When Moses was told to turn south instead of going straight up through the Philistia and go down back into the desert, bound by the Gulf of Aquaba, and get trapped in the desert, that did not make one bit of sense. But if we're told we need to do something through the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, we need to give leadership to that. What personal risk have you taken to carry out Jesus' mission? I'm kicking myself the other day because I didn't take a risk. I carry little glow parts. You have glow tracks that carry those around. I was outside of a hotel in the Upper Peninsula. I'd been up there, and I was getting ready to leave, and I was going in to pick up my bill, and I had the glow tracks, and there was a couple sitting there, and they were looking at their iPhone, and I just had the impression of the Holy Spirit would go over there and give them a glow track. And I said to myself, I'll do that on the way out. On the way out, they were crawling into somebody else's car that had come to pick them up, and I missed the opportunity. 
probably just because there's some timidity in me that I'm, I'm I, yeah, I know you used to look at me and say, well, he's probably not timid. No, I, I've got some timidity in me. Take the risk, personal risk. You're taking to carry out the mission of Jesus. How does faithfulness put the church and the Christian at risk? What could it cost you to be faithful? What risk did Jesus take when he washed the disciples' feet? Made Judas mad. Judas says to him, and, and Judas walked right out of there and went and, and made the deal to crucify him. Uh, or to finish the deal. Great leaders take risks for Christ, but they also learn from their what? Will you make mistakes? The only people that don't make mistakes are people that don't do anything. The only people that make mistakes are people that don't take risks. Now, I'm not talking about foolhardy risks, but I'm talking about doing what is good and wise. Do missionaries who take their families, I see a, a veteran missionary over here, John, Missionaries take their families overseas. Is that risk? Huge risk. Jesus took risk because he knew where he'd come from. He knew how he had surrendered control of his life to his father. He knew where he was going. Isn't that good news? He knew where he came from. He knew who was in charge. And he knew he had surrendered control to his father. His father was wonderful. And he knew where he was going. The power of God makes a person a spiritual leader, not natural gifts. Now, I'm not down on natural gifts. There are a lot of people with natural gifts. And that's a good thing. And you need all the gifts that you can get in any kind of leadership position. But I want to tell you that that's not what makes you... Was Moses gifted? Yes or no? Did he have great uh, abilities? Huge abilities. You can read about what Ellen White says about him in, in Patriarchs and Prophets. But I want to tell you, that's not what made Moses the great man that he was. Listen, when you're up against the king of Egypt and the Pharaoh, the most stubborn guy that the earth has ever known, and he, after it takes ten plagues and killing all the firstborn to get, the, get him out, and then he still gets an army and chases you down the Red Sea, and he's still so stubborn, he sees this huge miracle that nobody's ever seen, no recorded in history, where the whole ocean is opened up in front of you, and he's stupid enough to run his army in there because he's determined to get Moses. He is so stubborn. Let me tell you, Moses could have never delivered himself and Israel out of all of that. It had to be the power of God. So no matter how smart Moses was, he can't open Red Seas. It doesn't know how talented Moses is, he can't bring down a plague of locusts. It doesn't matter how smart Moses is. His leadership was utterly dependent on the power of God. And that's a huge lesson all of us need to learn as leaders. God did not go looking for leaders, but for obedient followers that he could make into leaders. Um, <clears throat> How to take risks for God. Know and trust Him completely by knowing and trusting His Word. I think in Seventh-day Adventists, we ought to study the Bible carefully, and we ought to study the spirit of prophecy. What does God teach us? How does He want us to run our schools? How does He want us to run our churches? How does He want us to run our conferences? What are the principles? How does He want you to run your business? How does He want you to run your ministries? How does He want you to do that? Well, there are principles there. Clear. Two, you trust his promises and then obey his commands. How about that for a mantra? Trust his principles, trust his teachings, and then just be obedient. You are not afraid because you have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Good news. Principle five. Uh, I want to get into conflict management. I'll get into a little bit, I think, before I'm done here. Take up the towel. Submission is not a dirty word. <laughs> 
It may be a dirty word in our world today, but it's not a dirty word. The cross was about submission. The towel was about service. Jesus' mission was to do the will of his Father, not to fulfill the wishes of his followers. What? Jesus' mission was to do the what? The will of his follower, his Father, not to fulfill the wishes of his followers. Four, dress like a servant, acting like a slave, Jesus still what? He was still leading. Would Jesus dress like a slave, serving like a servant, he's still leading. He's still the leader now. When he washed the disciples' feet, and he washed Judas' feet, even though Judas despised him doing it, Jesus was still the leader. Jesus was showing us power, us human beings, power hungry we are, selfish people, that the real world was unselfish love. Oh, secret of answered prayer. <clears throat> I won't do all of these. How many of you know the life of George Mueller? Anybody that doesn't know the life of George Mueller? Let me see your hand. Okay. He, had, he lived in the uh, late 1800s. He had, uh, at one time, 2,000 orphans. He never asked anybody for a dime, and God sent him money. And there are a lot of times I could tell you story after story about the life of George Mueller, but I'm going to let you look it up for sake of time. Probably one of the greatest men in modern times to live, a great man of faith, and uh, God accomplished huge things for him. I mean, they would wake up in the morning. I mean, they would go to bed at night not having one bit of food in the morning. George Mueller would get down and pray, uh, one story, uh, many stories like this, but he got down one night and prayed with his friend. His friend says, don't you, hey, the stores aren't even open anymore. George Mueller knew that. George Mueller didn't have any money in the bank either, and he had 2,000 orphans to feed. You think about that. Wake up in the morning. I would hate to do that. I'd hate to wake up one morning and find out I have got 2,000 orphans to feed, educate, and there's no money in the bank. Hire all the people to look after 2,000. When George Mueller woke up the next morning, somebody had came and and deliver them enough food, not just for breakfast, but for a whole month. And the benefactor said, told somebody, but he says, you can't tell anybody until after George Mueller's death. But in the middle of the night, God woke this man up. He knew nothing of George Mueller's need, nothing of the need of the orphans, and impressed on him to take enough food to feed that orphanage for a month. 2,000 mouths to feed three times a day. That's a lot of food. And it was there in time for breakfast the next morning. That's the kind of man you're dealing with here. Now listen to this man. He says, how to ascertain the will of God. I seek at the beginning to get my heart in such a state that it has no will of its own regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people generally is just here. Why? Because we struggle. Jay Gallimore struggles to want to do his own thing. Instead of getting my heart right with God and submissive with God and find out what God has in store for me to do. He goes on, nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will. Here's the next part, the tough part. Whatever it may what. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. Having done this, too, I do not leave the result to feeling or simple impression. I cannot emphasize that enough. How many people run their lives? So I got this feeling. I got this impression. And so I just went ahead and did it. 
Well, is that feeling and that impression in harmony with the will of God, is in harmony with scriptures, in harmony with the spirit of prophecy? How do you measure that, that feeling or that impression? That feeling and that impression is very variable. It could come from somewhere where you wish it hadn't come from. He says, if I, I do not leave the result to feeling or simple impressions. If I do, I make myself liable to great what? Delusions. I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. He didn't have the Spirit of Prophecy in his day. There was no Seventh-day Adventist at that point. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, He will do so, hallelujah for the statement, He will do so according to Scripture and never contrary to them. Next, I take into account providential circumstances. These often plain, plainly indicate God's will in connection with His Word and Spirit. Five, I ask God in prayer to reveal His will to me aright. Six, thus through prayer to God, the study of His Word and reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace and continues after two or three more petitions, I, prove according, I proceed accordingly in trivial matters and in transactions involving the most important issues. I have found this method always in effect. He and his wife, his wife was not very well. They were getting ready to get on a steamer and George Mueller had prayed about their baggage and had asked God to deliver that baggage and the baggage wasn't delivered, wasn't delivered. It had their deck chairs on it and in those days you wanted a deck chair because they weren't going to supply you with a deck chair. And people kept urging George Mueller, buy a deck chair, do this, do this. Do. And he says, no. I sought the Lord this morning. And he says in another place, I've never failed to gain an audience with a king every morning. They get on, George Mueller's calm. Right at the last minute, the wagon shows up and there's George Mueller's luggage and the deck chairs right on top of the luggage. I, it, it's an incredible story and I'll get started. I won't get through the rest of this. Here's his attitude. I love this. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will, died to the world, its approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. I, I would like to get there. I'm, I think sometimes I'm a long way from wanting to be there. But I want to be there. Well, because of time, I'm going to skip down here. And uh, principle six, last two go quick. Share power and responsibility. Secure leaders in power. Um, I, I, I had a sermon on Ephesians chapter five, and I talked about headship and servant leadership of the man and his family. And I said, you know, good leaders are always seeking to empower those around them. Listen, if your wife is better than you are at accounting, don't be stupid. Get her to get it, do it for you. You know, be smart about this kind of thing. My leadership, uh, whether it's in my home or wherever, is to endeavor to empower people to find, to blossom and bloom. Isn't that what Jesus does with me when I follow him? Doesn't he want me to blossom and bloom? 
So does he want my children to blossom and lose? He might watch. That is, that's not going to take away from my leadership. Good leaders, good leaders empower people, but you still have the responsibility, as you said, you cannot give that responsibility up. You still have the oversight, but share power and responsibility. Secure leaders empower. The church is a training center for Christian workers, praise the Lord. That's what it should be. We have two, our churches are too pastor dependent and not, we should be pastor appreciative, but not pastor dependent. And if I get started on that, that'll be a whole nother hour. (laughs) The Jesus model of ministry versus the popular model, and I'm not going to go there. I don't have time right now. Uh, God calls every member to serve, and that's why we wash feet. Amen. Seven, enlarge the kingdom by making disciples. One, the church is a congregation. Create a sense of togetherness. Two, we are to love one another. That's unselfish love. To love somebody doesn't mean I have to give up principle. Am I right? I can still call sin by its right name, not afraid to do that. It doesn't mean I don't love you. If I say, I don't think that's right, show me from Scripture where that's right. I don't think what you're doing is right. That doesn't mean I don't love you. Our our world today thinks you have to indulge somebody in order to get them. I want to get in this conflict because I've got to... Okay, we're to love one another, period. We hold ourselves accountable for a common mission. Church discipline is to redeem, not to punish. Ooh, that's a whole big subject. Four, five, cooperation is not competition, and uh, cooperation, not competition, is the most powerful, productive model to accomplish great things. Somebody should have said amen. Heaven is not going to be filled with competition. It's going to be filled with cooperation. And I know our world runs on competition, but all the studies, you can look in the secular world, you can look in the spiritual world, and they will tell you all the studies show that cooperation by far outwins competition and productivity and togetherness. I know we live in a world that's whatever, but that's the truth. Six, the church should use things to get people done rather than use people to get things done because we're in the people business. Am I right? By the way, great companies also use that mantra. All right, I've got just a few more minutes, and I want to go to managing conflict. Still with me? All right. Conflict is inevitable if you're a leader. If you're a mother in the home, I can remember riding down the road and, and our two kids in the back seat having sibling rivalry. Have you ever heard that, been through that? There's conflict. You are going to have conflict. If you're in any kind of leadership position, it's only a matter of time. In order to manage conflict, first of all, it starts with managing conflict in yourself. Now, this comes from Ministry of Healing, page 483, which is a great book. has a chapter on there in contact with others. Every association of life calls for the exercise of three things, self-control, forbearance or patience, and sympathy. Every one you work with has different personalities, experience, and traits of character. I know, I know, she makes this quote. It's very good. So frail, so ignorant, so liable to misconception is human nature that each should be careful in the estimate he places upon another. I work, uh, I work, I don't think he'll mind me telling this story. Um, I, Jim Mitchell uh, is conference secretary and my right-hand person in so many ways. He's a wonderful leader. Um, and just recently he had 
I'm going to try to obscure this enough. So, But he, he was confronted. He was asked to do a funeral. But when he got there, or, or he was told ahead of time that a uh, Eastern type of religion also was going to be there and they were going to do their, their thing. And I'm trying to obscure this enough. And so he called them up and he says, look, I, I can't mix my Christian service with that. I can't do that. He said, if you, he said to the family, if you want to let them have the graveside service, then you can do that, but I won't be there. But I will do the other service. Because the family's all mixed. Do you understand? It's tough. And... Um, so he got there. He doesn't know I'm telling you this. So. He got there, and of course, this person that was going to do this Eastern stuff um, was, was pretty upset. So it was him and the pastor. So he came in, and he really lit into the pastor. And he says, uh, you know, I've got this license from this religion, and if I need to get a license from this other kind of religion that he meant, I can get that license too. And he says, I've never had anybody say I couldn't come in and do this. Jim's the leader. And he reached over to this guy and took his hand and then didn't let go. Very calmly said, it's not his fault, it's mine. I'm the one. And he says, and I made a mistake and I want to apologize. He said, I... Um, I sent a, he didn't let go of the guy's hand. He said, he said I, I asked somebody to contact, because that person contacted him, him, and he said, would you contact this person and let them know? And he says, I should have called you directly myself. And I'm sorry. But he says, I can't mix this. And the man just calmed right down. funeral director was watching all of this and he goes up to Jim the man calm right down says, okay fine funeral director comes up to Jim out of not in the earshot of this other guy he says thank you so much for the way you handled that several things going on there first of all there was that loving touch holding on to his hand like that not just doing this and let go Calm voice, apology for a true mistake, and at the same time holding firm to his principles. That was a powerful picture of leadership if I've ever seen it. It could have been a disaster. I mean, this is a touchy moment. And this is happening, talking about time pressure, this is happening like five minutes before you're supposed to go out and start the funeral. And that's because there wasn't conflict in himself. Now, he didn't say that about himself. I'm saying that about himself. He'd already humbled his heart that morning. So you can't do that if, you're, if self is in charge. Because if self is in charge, you're going to have an argument. We told you that. You know, you're not supposed to be. That's what's going to happen. And the minute you do that, you're going to sit off with all of other stuff. Conflict management's tough, but it takes, first of all, making sure that self is 
is out of business here. I don't know what happened to that. All went away. Okay, hang on. It's still up here. Um, I mean, I've still got it on mine, but for whatever reason, it went away there. My, my apologies. Okay, let's, is it back? Okay, good. Self-control, that's another one in Ellen White's statement. We cannot afford, she says, to let our spirits chafe over any real or supposed wrong done to ourselves. No form of vice, listen to this. No form of vice has more baleful effects upon the character than human passion not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Whoa. We should not allow our feelings to be what? So, it's so easy. I ask myself sometimes, okay, Jay, are you just letting your feelings be wounded here? Are you doing the right thing because it is the right thing? Are, are you getting self in the way here? Feelings are very powerful. Emotions are very powerful. Forbearance or patience. Control impulsiveness with what? Earnest prayer in the morning, dying to self. Discipline the little things. If you learn to discipline the little things in your life, then when you're tempted to be impulsive about the bigger things, that will uh, help. Control your thoughts. I wish I had time to talk about control your thoughts. Let me give you two things here. You cannot think about two things at the same time. Nobody wants to argue with me over that. Therefore, if the wrong kinds of stuff come into your mind, then what you do is you kick it out and you say, I choose not to think of that. You do not have to think just whatever comes into your mind. You can control your thoughts. You should control your thoughts. And the other thing is anticipate ahead of time where you're going to be tempted in Michigan They'll show up on those billboards. I was coming to uh, Camp Osaba one day, and up on the, one of those billboards that has, uh, you know, they change the writing on it or whatever, the message on it, and it says, if, you, if, you, if a deer runs in front of you, don't swerve. Why do they give you that message? Because the normal reaction is to swerve. And if you're running at 70 miles an hour and you swerve, you're going, the likelihood of flipping that car and killing yourself is very real. So what they're saying is, we'd rather you kill the deer. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, whoever. I, I like animals too, but this is the way it is. The deer, who's more important, the deer or you? So you have to make a decision ahead of time. If you're not going to react to impulse, you have to say, okay, I know I'm going to be impulsive with that, so I'm making a decision right now that if at 70 miles an hour a deer runs out in front of me, I'm not swerving. Ugh. If you don't make that decision ahead of time, you'll swerve. So you already make the decision back there to get to it. Okay, more on, on controlling your thoughts at another time. Never, we're never alone. Thank the Lord for that. Uh, sympathy and understanding. I, I want to talk about this one right here because I'm out of time. This is probably the most important tool in my toolbox for handling conflict. Am I practicing the golden rule? When people sit in front of me and there's conflict, I ask myself silently, what is the golden rule here? How would I like to be treated if I were sitting in that seat? I, I know it's well known, but it's the most important tool in my administrative toolbox. Am I practicing feelings or principle? 
Now, this is one that I've learned through the time. And in difficult emotional moments, learn to do what? Buy time. Why do I buy time in the midst of conflict? Because time gives you time to think through things. Sometimes I'll say, well, you know, it's not an emergency right now, is it? I know we feel strongly about it. It's not an emergency right now. Could we think about this and pray about this together? And then let's get back tomorrow. Or give me a phone call after you've had a chance to do that. And you know what? When we get back together, it, it didn't seem so ominous. It didn't seem so tight. It didn't seem so urgent. And this is one I learned from Jesus Learn to ask good questions with a kindly voice. Jesus was a marvelous questioner. I mean, anybody can ask questions, but to ask outstanding questions and questions that reach the heart and questions that get right to the real issue and bring the issue right up so you can see it in clear black and white. To be able to ask those questions in moments of difficulty and conflict helps everybody to settle down and say, oh, I see what you mean. last one. Ministry of Healing, page 494. Remember, you cannot read hearts. You do not know the motives which prompted the actions that you, to you look wrong. There are many who have not received a right education. Their characters, I, this is a fascinating statement, their characters are warped, they're hard, and gnarled. You ever run into anybody like that? Don't raise your hand. Some of the most difficult people that would fit that description can be reached if you're thoughtful. And here's another one I've learned. Learn, try to understand before trying to be understood. Let me do that one again. Try to understand before trying to be understood. How many times have I been helped when I said uh, to a person, I said, would you share again to me why you feel the way you do? And then I say, I, is this what I heard you say? And then I repeat back to them, I think this is what I heard you say. Did I get it right? What, what kind of message am I sending to them at that point? It seems to me that I have a real sincere integrity to be able to hear where they're really coming from. And then I'm able to say, what about this and what about that? And then we get a real conversation going about the issues. I had somebody not long ago, I won't tell you where or how or who. I won't even tell you the gender. Well, they were lying to me through their teeth. If I told you the story, you would say, duh. They were lying to me. And I listened. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, would, your, would, your student, would you buy that from your students? And they looked at me and they said, no, burst into tears. 
I'm not, I'm not in the business of putting people down. I'm in the business of building people. I'm not looking for people's failures. People lie to me, I'll give them another chance. I'll take more risk. Why? So I want to see them in the kingdom. I want them to right whatever problem that they're having. And as I listened to this individual, as I thought about their background, sitting there listening to them, thought about the difficulty. I've looked at people at times and I've said to myself, they come from such a difficult background and they're expressing stuff and so forth. And I'm saying to myself, you know, Jay, you're listening to this person. You've got to remember their journey. You had two good parents who really loved you. You had a wonderful family. They weren't perfect, but they were good family. And they loved you. This person hasn't had the benefit of any of that. If you're going to help people, you've got to hear them. You've got to hear where they come from. And they've got to hear your heart. And as one person says, people don't care what you have to say until they know you care. Most of conflict, most of conflict can be healed in that. Not all of it. Some of it you can never avoid. But most of it can be healed and taken care of if we approach it with wisdom, the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. Well, thank you so much. You've been a wonderful group. Sorry I didn't have time for question and answers. I would have loved to have got into that. But let's bow our heads for the benediction. Gracious Father in heaven, there's so much to learn at the feet of Jesus. And I want to learn today. I want to learn tomorrow. I want to walk with you. I want to hear your voice. Thank you for understanding me. Thank you for knowing about my ancestors. Thank you about knowing about my journey. Thank you for being so patient and so powerful in my life. And I pray that for every one of us who are leaders this morning, whether we're mothers in our homes, we're leading businesses or ministries or duties in our churches, whatever those responsibilities are, may we, by the grace of God, carry them out in such a way that every day we can hear the voice of Jesus say, you please me today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.